Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Kaylee Chambers. And I'm Shane Chernoff. As the nation commemorates the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it also marks the second inauguration of President Barack Obama. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leanna Schicchetti reports on how Gainesville marked the day. It's been 50 years since Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and told the American people of his dream. And 50 years later, King's legacy lives on. On what would have been King's 84th birthday, people around the nation are celebrating his life as well as the second inauguration of President Barack Obama. The Martin Luther King Jr. Commission of Florida hosted a variety of events today to mark the occasion at the Memorial Gardens bearing his name in downtown Gainesville. President and founder of the commission, Rodney Long, says that much like the people marching in Washington, D.C. those 50 years ago, people today are living in a moment of history. You tell them you was downtown Gainesville on the Bodetta Plaza and you were living history. You will recognize that not only a man whose birthday we celebrate today, but a president who has his second inauguration today. We're living in history today. The commission also took time to recognize several members of the community who have demonstrated and adopted the principles of Dr. King. Louis Calavota is this year's Induction Hall of Fame Award recipient. Calavota is the program director of criminal justice, emergency medical services, fire science, and aviation at the Institute of Public Safety at Santa Fe College. He says he is very humbled to receive the honor. Oh, it's... Words, words are not adequate to describe uh, how honored I feel about being chosen for this award. Uh, again, uh, an extraordinary group of people that preceded me, and I feel as though I stand on the shoulders of giants. Jenna Stafford, a senior from Eastside High School, was also recognized at the ceremony as the recipient of the 23rd Annual Keeper of the Dream Award and Scholarship. She was chosen for her extensive involvement in the community and academic achievements. Jenna says she hopes to become a veterinarian eventually and will continue to keep the dream alive. I think keeping the dream alive is being a part of the community and knowing how you're going to give back and how you're going to keep the words of Dr. Martin Luther King like in your heart and strive to model your, model your life after his, you know, and keep just keep that dream alive inside you because with that you can conquer anything and face anything. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise As people filled into Bo Diddley Plaza to be a part of the celebration, they listened to the dream of Dr. King and the dreams of those awarded. After the ceremony, many of them participated in the annual commemorative march and the national holiday gospel program. The events will conclude on Tuesday with a program to honor Coretta Scott King. Before the ceremonies concluded, Gainesville High School student Lamont Wallace recipient of the 2013 oratorical contest, left the crowd with his thoughts on the celebration. In the words of our great President Barack Obama, in order to move forward, you must be fired up and ready to go. I said, you must be fired up and ready to go. Are you fired up and ready to go? Because I'm fired up and I'm ready to go. So then we can keep Dr. King's dream alive and maybe one day we can see 
the words of the old Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leanna Scacchetti in Gainesville. As President Obama begins his second term, some residents of Gainesville want to see some major changes in the next four years. One of them, Taylor Lopez, isn't too optimistic about President Obama's second term. I really don't expect anything from him because he hasn't really, I don't know, the economy's going down no matter what because he's making poor decisions. Lopez says he's seen friends and family taxed in ways like never before and thinks that the most pressing issue that must be resolved is where all the tax money is going. Like how like, um, he like, keeps on funding the welfare system and everything. I think it's a big hoax these days. Uh, people need to learn like, to work again, like, you know, like the 50s or the 40s or the 30s, and, and uh, we need to get back to that old school. He adds that although we are moving forward in time, we should not hesitate to look back and learn from our ancestors on how a successful nation should operate. Others around Gainesville think that the focus should be primarily on making sure all Americans' health is taken care of. Just changes in the current health care situation. I like what he started, but it needs to be changed. As a nurse, I see lots of patients who are still needing more from our government as far as health care goes. This resident says that while she has yet to be personally impacted by the current health laws, the future of the health care system could put her in a troubling position. UF student Matt Kruzovich, whose father works in the financial sector, says the first term under President Obama was difficult. I'd like to see Obama get the economy better. Oh yeah, my dad's a financial advisor, so when the stock market crashed, we kind of got screwed over. It's just, he just didn't make as much money. (laughs) He adds out he will be on the same track of financial tragedy if something doesn't change in the next four years. As President Obama is preparing to take on a second term in office, one issue he's already spoken on is tighter gun control. However, Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Courtney Allen reports firearms may still be sold without the government's approval. When customers walk through the doors of Saps Pawn Gun and Archery to purchase a gun, owner Butch Ford knows exactly what a successful transaction demands, an extensive background check. But unlike gun sales at Ford's shop, private sales call for a much different procedure, one that is less strict. The private sale of firearms at events like gun shows may be completed without government permission, President Obama is hoping to put a stop to that practice with universal background checks. Ford says standards vary at gun shows. If you deal with a a licensed dealer, you're going to have to follow all the federal rules and regulations. If you deal with a private individual, there are no rules or regulations. Gainesville resident Alex Toralvo purchased a firearm at a gun show with no background check. A private seller selling a gun to somebody I think should still require a background check. I don't know if they do or not. As the law now stands, anyone looking to purchase a gun must fill out this form so that the police department can run a background check to see whether they are eligible for a permit. One thing Ford questions is how exactly the government plans to administer the background checks when the transaction is between private parties. Courtney Allen, WUFT News. The nation honored Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today with many parades and rallies, and North Central Florida was no exception. WUFT's Ben Bornstein was at the Martin Luther King Day Parade in Gainesville, and he has more. Martin Luther King Jr. advocated equality among not only different races, but among all people. 
To celebrate this, the city of Gainesville held a parade in Dr. King's honor. Hundreds of people of all ages showed up for the parade and marched their way down University Avenue, just like Dr. King and his followers marched for equality back in 1963. Father Roland Julian has been participating in the parade for years and believes that the message of equality should continue on today. Whether we're black or white or any color, uh, we're all equal. And I, I really want to proclaim that in all that I say and do. So I want to respect people regardless of their color, regardless of their race. Father Julian also believes that the inauguration of President Barack Obama today was a big step in achieving Dr. King's ultimate goal of equal rights among all people. Uh, it is a big step in that direction, and uh, I think that, that as the first black president, it, it, really, it really opens up a whole new vista of, of how uh, our, our country should go. And uh, let's hope and pray that we continue and that we, we continue to hold people uh, on an even plane. The parade wasn't the only event going on as 21-year-old Ryan Sappenfield and his fraternity brothers took part in a volunteer effort beforehand. Uh, I am involved with my fraternity, uh, and we all volunteered earlier today with the MLK volunteer operation they were doing at Gator Wesley. Uh, and then we had lunch and just came out to the parade. Sappenfield says the main message to get out of this holiday and the parade is unity. He believes that people should come together and forget about their differences. Unity is important. Um, no matter who you are or what you do, no matter what's going on in life, you know, we're all still people. We all should care about each other. We really shouldn't separate or find, find differences that are deconstructive and just, you know, not beneficial to producing a better lifestyle for all of us in general. 49-year-old James Taylor has been participating in this parade for many years and plans on going to more events afterwards as well. Uh, yes, we're going to go downtown for the, um, the Christian celebration that they have down at Martin Luther King Center. Although he isn't the James Taylor known for his voice, he will surely be singing at the service tonight at 6 p.m. at the Macedonia Baptist Church to commemorate Coretta Scott King, widow of Dr. King. 56-year-old Jeannie Diaz remembers the I Have a Dream speech and what it meant to her. Okay, I was fairly young. I remember watching it on television. I remember being aware of it. I remember going to activities about that. I also remember relatives in my own, own families making very violent, not my immediate family, but violent comments about what should happen to Dr. King. I remember how pained I was at that. Diaz hopes that we can continue to make strides in equality and to embrace everyone as family on this 50th anniversary of Dr. King's famous speech. 44th President Barack Obama was sworn in today on Martin Luther King Day, a groundbreaking day in United States history. I spoke with University of Florida Associate History Professor Paul Ortiz about just how interesting it is that both were on the same day. Can you talk about a little bit about the significance of the presidential inauguration being on the same day as Martin Luther King Day? Well, this is extraordinarily significant. President Obama has chosen to uh, take his oath of office uh, on a Bible, of course, we know it's associated with Dr. King, and so that in itself makes it very symbolic. Uh, President Obama has frequently invoked uh, Dr. King uh, in his speeches and in his ideas on policies. But I think in a larger sense, 
the, the significance is that this is really a day of service, uh, a day of community activism. We've, we've taken this holiday. It's unlike any other holiday in our nation's history. It's, it's a day when we don't sit on a couch and watch television, but we get out in our communities and try to do things. You know, we volunteer at homeless shelters. Uh, we dig in community gardens. Um, we canvas. We, we educate people. You know, we do things to improve our communities, and that's what makes this day such a special day. And I think that it invokes uh, that idea of an active uh, people, an active citizenry, not just passive and watching uh, and, and letting people do, you know, letting other people do for us, but really, you know, asking what we can do for our nation, to paraphrase another great president. Just to, just to build on that, you said, you know, it's, it's important that Americans don't sit on the couch today. What are some things that you feel it's important for Americans to reflect on today? Well, I think reflecting on the example of Dr. King's life is the most important of all, the fact that when 1,300 of the poorest people in Memphis, Tennessee, went out on strike, the sanitation workers, uh, Dr. King didn't just watch this from, from afar, but said, I need to be with those workers who are trying to form a union to improve their lives and the lives of their families. And so he traveled to Memphis. Uh, he knew his life was in severe danger. Uh, he knew that people wanted to end his life, but he didn't allow that to stop him. And if you look at his example, I mean, that's what really pushes us uh, individually to pursue social justice today. He was a far-thinking man. Uh, it wasn't just that he was a great activist in his own time. He started pointing out some things that a lot of other people had quite noticed. One was in the 1960s, the economy had reached a point where it was no longer able to provide jobs for every American. And so Dr. King began promoting the notion of a guaranteed annual income. Uh, he was one of the early people to speak out against the Vietnam War, and even in a much larger sense, to really question uh, the policy of war that his nation had pursued. He famously said, my nation is the most violent uh, nation on earth, and no one wants to hear that. And Dr. King became very unpopular for that. But I think that one of the things we need to remember today is that um, life is not a popularity contest. That's a, a great example Dr. King set for us. He spoke the truth even when it was unpopular, even when many Americans didn't want to hear it. Uh, he was very insistent uh, on these things. Martin Luther King, obviously he was assassinated in 1968. At the time... Did anyone even even think of the notion that there would be an African-American president elected just 40 years later? I don't think so. I mean, that's a very good question. Um, I think in the 60s, uh, the struggle was still uh, for African-Americans there you know, simply to get voting rights that they had fought so hard for for so many centuries. I think you'd have to go back to the 19th century, the period you know, in, in during the Civil War, uh, when so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of African Americans fought to save the Union, and and even earlier, uh, one out of every five soldiers in General Washington's Continental Army were, were black men. So so African Americans had fought; uh, they had served 
you know, for generations had not received the, the rights that they were, were entitled to. But I think back in the 60s, it would have been very hard to conceptualize of a black president. Um, there had been black uh, congressmen. There have been black senators. Uh, some of them had not even been seated after, uh, after being elected. Julian Bond is a good example. But I think what's happened, uh, you know, your original question, is that the generations of activism, you know, first within the black community and certainly within, within other communities, um, has, has made a difference, has really paid off. To me, the lesson of the election of Barack Obama is that if you, you, know, if you fight hard enough for a goal, uh, if you learn how to create a social movement, if you learn how to get your neighbors involved in, in a struggle, uh, then you can actually change the world for better. It's not that America has become more progressive, it's just that people have learned how to organize more effectively. And, and if you look at the way that Obama was first elected in 2008, you'll see many of the people who were canvassing going door to door, making it was a call to unity at the inauguration for President Barack Obama earlier today. Per usual, the president used his inaugural address for a second term to express more bluntly the goals of his administration. WUFTFM's Chip Scambus spoke with University of South Florida political science professor Susan McManus, who is at the Capitol, about the implications this will have for governance in the coming years. I'm sitting in the Florida House near the Capitol, where a lot of Floridians are stopping by to get a little bit warm and so forth, so that's where I'm speaking from right now. That's interesting, and uh, speaking of Florida, I, I'm sure it went, it didn't pass your notice that President Obama mentioned Florida in his inauguration address with people standing in line for hours to vote. What did you, were you expecting that sort of remark? I've said it before, and the funny thing is I was sitting in a room of about 300 Floridians, and uh, when he said that line, the whole room erupted. I was with a uh, a delegation up from Corinne Brown's district have, was able to sit in and, and watch them watch the inauguration, and that got a huge round of applause, that line. I thought it was interesting. It seemed uh, the tone of this inaugural address was much different than the one in 2008. I was surprised to hear a bit more uh, controversial or edgier remarks than in his 2008 speech. I think a lot of that was driven by the history of the moment, the fact that it was the 150th year of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 50th anniversary of the MLK March on Washington. A lot of history, a lot of focus on, as might be expected, on justice and equity and freedom. So I don't think it was particularly surprising, the tone of it, in light of the context in which the inaugural address was made historically. I thought that that was interesting because his whole message did revolve around intolerance, diversity, inclusion, and unity, as you said. And I thought that it was interesting because some of the remarks seemed to be playing off of a lot of the issues that polarize the American public right now. Surely, but he's also quite aware, as most presidents are, that if won a second term of legacy. And his legacy will be, of course, historical, being the first African-American president, but also... Uh, being the first one to be reelected. In fact, everywhere around here, just about every placard, every souvenir you can buy, has something about the word history or back-to-back. -back. And historically, second-term presidents really stake out in an inaugural address what they want to accomplish 
and what they want to be remembered for. So it's clear that he has this diversity and unity and equity and justice theme in his mind about how he'd like to be remembered when his four years are up. And do you think that we're going to see maybe more reaching out to the public? Like, I know that there was a disappointment after the 2008 election where he did such a grassroots campaign starting from the bottom, moving up and, like, organizing the public. And yet when he went into office, he sort of withdrew into Washington and didn't really continue doing, like, say what FDR did doing the New Deal, where he said, fine, if you want this, come out on the streets and make me do this. Do you think we might be seeing more public involvement in the Obama administration? Absolutely, because you probably noticed within the last couple of days it's been announced that the famed Obama for America organization, and particularly the data set, was going to be kept alive separately with the whole purpose of exactly what you were saying of mobilizing grassroots support as a way to leverage Congress to get some things through. So clearly, we can expect more of that this time out. Do you think it'll have more success than, say, during the debt ceiling crisis in 2011, where he made his TV addresses that didn't really seem to engender the sort of response he was looking for? Do you think these efforts will have better results? Grassroots politics is always much more successful than aloof politics. And I think near the middle of the campaign is when he really recognized that that was what was working. And I'm sure that the message was not lost on the president that that's how you're going to get things done in the next four years. Because the truth of the matter is, is the country still is divided politically. And his greatest legacy, of course, could be unifying the country and economic recovery. And you, you saw both of those themes evident and what he was talking about today as he talked to the American public. Yeah, I, I, I hope he's able to do it, as I'm sure most people are. I've, he's obviously got quite a, a task with those lofty goals. Well, it's not easy. I mean, we have a lot of big problems in the country. He alluded to many of them. And even in interviewing a lot of Floridians, I probably interviewed you know, 25 different ones from all over the state in the last couple of days. No one has exactly mentioned the, the same issue as being preeminent as what they'd like to him to do this next four years. So not only is the country divided politically, but also in terms of their issue, priorities differ. And that makes governing, you know, a tough job for anyone. But it's particularly tough right now when expectations of those who voted for him the second time around are very high. And already people are thinking ahead to 2016. There was so much discussion in the room I was in of Hillary for 2016 when she was shown on the screen and whatever. But the bottom line is that uh, the president has a tough job, not only domestically but internationally. And uh, you could see all of it weighing on his mind in the speech he gave today. That was WUFTFM's Chip Scambus speaking with University of South Florida political science professor Susan McManus. A University of Florida graduate is among the many members of the news media covering the events in Washington, D.C. For UF Telecommunications grad Ken Molestina, it started over the weekend with some parties that are for groups tied closely to President Obama. Well, you know, the, leading up to today, Washington is basically just full of a lot of uh, parties and galas. And really what it is, it's, it's everyone uh, coming together to sort of uh, celebrate uh, what everyone believes their role was in the past election. So I was at the uh, OurTimes.org uh, inaugural kickoff party, and that was a party that celebrated essentially the, the young American vote. Uh, we saw in this past election that was a, uh, a huge driver 
uh, down at the polls. So this was an event, a uh, star-studded event with a lot of celebrities. Will I Am was there, uh, John Legend, uh, Common. Uh, you know, a lot of folks that really did a lot of work for the Obama administration and campaigning back in November and trying to get the young vote out. So that's what that was about. Uh, and again, you know, it's just a big party to celebrate that and to continue to encourage other young Americans that perhaps may have sat on the sidelines this time around to come out next time uh, and really just to highlight what an important uh, role uh, that is for, for young Americans to take part in. So that was the, uh, the ourtime.org uh, inaugural event that was held at the, uh, the portrait gallery uh, over here in, uh, in downtown uh, Washington. So um, that was that one. The uh, one last night was the, uh, the Latino inaugural gala. Um, and as you know, 75% of the Latino vote, well, let me say that again, uh, 75% of the Latino vote uh, back in November uh, voted for Obama, for President Obama. So uh, the Obama administration, President Biden, they, they all understand um, that of the minority groups, that's probably uh, one of the ones that had a huge impact, uh, arguably had the biggest impact uh, in getting uh, Obama's administration reelected. So last night was just basically a big thank you. Uh, to the Latino community, it was uh, the event was laced with uh, the who's who of the Latino community: actors, actresses, uh, activists, uh, philanthropists, um, and, and it really was an opportunity um, for the faces who've been sort of driving some of the, uh, the the plights for the Latino community to to come out and just say, you know, things are getting better. Uh, the president understands uh, that the Latino community, in large part, uh, is to is to thank. Uh, for him being reelected, but there was also a lot of uh, criticism of uh, promises that were made his first try- his first term that weren't uh, necessarily fulfilled. Of course, a comprehensive immigration reform is something that is huge to the uh, to the Latino community, and uh, you know these folks all came together to just sort of continue to sound that drum and continue to remind the president uh, and his administration that that's something that they still want to see come through. Uh, the president has made it a pr- top priority. Uh, he said in the first six months he will pass comprehensive immigration reform, and that's something um, that everyone who came together to this particular gala was sort of, uh, you know, really encouraging and just reminding everyone involved that that's something that the, the uh, Latino community needs to see uh, and they want to see happen uh, if this president wants to continue to enjoy the support of uh, the Latino community. That was UF alum Kem Molestina, currently a reporter for WUSA-TV in Washington, D.C. Miami poet Richard Blanco read the poem he wrote for President Obama's swearing-in ceremony today. Blanco is the first Hispanic to be chosen as an inaugural poet. As Florida Public Radio affiliate WLRN's Ariana Prothero reports, Blanco represents several several groups that helped give the president a second term in office. Richard Blanco's mother was seven months pregnant with him when the family arrived in Spain from Cuba in the late 60s. Shortly after Blanco was born, the family moved to the U.S. and eventually settled in Miami. Blanco's heritage is a theme throughout much of his poetry. Blanco was not available for an interview for this story. But in a 2008 interview with WLRN-TV, Blanco says it wasn't until adulthood that he started to examine his cultural background. And negotiating sort of how, where you fit in in that space to suddenly realize you know, through this irony that you think you're just as normal as everybody else around you, which you are because everybody else is Cuban, then you realize, oh my God, I'm not American. <laughs> or like, I wasn't as American as the Brady Bunch. Here's Blanco reading his poem, America, earlier this year at the Sunken Garden Poetry Festival in Connecticut. We didn't live in a two-story house with a maid or a wood panel station wagon or vacation camping in Colorado. None of the girls had hair of gold. 
None of my brothers or cousins were named Greg, Peter, or Marsha. We were not the Brady Bunch. Not only is Blanco the first Hispanic inaugural poet, he's also the first gay inaugural poet and the youngest. Charles Zeldin teaches legal and constitutional history at Nova Southeastern University. He says Blanco's invitation to read his poetry during the inaugural ceremony is a way for the Obama administration to celebrate those groups. I think the president is representing three of the important constituents that not only got him into office, but that he seeks to work with in the coming uh, second term, which would be young people, uh, gay people, and immigrants. Zeldin says the fact that Blanco is from Florida could also be a nod toward the large swing state that, in the end, went for Obama in the last election. I'm Mariana Prothero in Miami. Over the next several weeks, state lawmakers will hear from many groups about their legislative priorities for the coming session. Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports that includes the Everglades Foundation, which will present their plan to the Florida legislator later in the coming days. Everglades Foundation CEO Eric Eichenberg says his group fully supports Governor Rick Scott's water quality plan that he negotiated with the federal government last year. But Eichenberg says he wants his state to go further. That water quality plan calls for $32 million of state appropriations each year for the next 13 years. But we also can't lose sight that just by funding water quality, the legislature must fund restoration projects. And the Everglades Foundation has identified a handful of projects totaling about $28 million that continue the construction of these key projects within the ecosystem. Eichenberg is expected to present his ideas before the Senate Environmental and Preservation Committee as well as the House State Affairs Committee Thursday. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. It's been 44 years since we've lost Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., And on the day that the nation remembers him, it also remembers the struggles African Americans have had to endure. Earlier today, I had the chance to speak with University of Florida Associate History Professor Paul Ortiz about what we might not know about Dr. King's efforts. You spent lots of time in the Mississippi Delta to gather information uh, about oral history of the United States. Is that correct? Oh, yes, yes. We have been taking um, University of Florida students uh, for the past five years to the Mississippi Delta to interview veterans of the civil rights movement and to learn from them. Uh, can you tell us what was the most interesting civil rights story that you had heard during your time there? Oh, there were so many amazing stories. I think one of the most interesting was a young man who was running for sheriff in Bolivar County. Um, he had been... Uh, uh, he was canvassing. He was starting his, his campaign in, um, actually shortly after President Obama was elected. And this young man uh, went to the home of an older uh, veteran of the Civil Rights Movement, and he said, I want you to support me for sheriff. And she said, well, why? And he said, well, if you elect me, I'll be the first African-American sheriff uh, in the history of Bolivar County. And the lady replied to him. She said, uh, young man, I'll support you, but you have to understand, we had an African-American sheriff of Bolivar County during Reconstruction in the 1870s. And I love this story because, I mean, she ended up supporting him, but she was teaching him the history that he didn't know that hadn't been taught him in the schools, which is that there had been African-American office holders during Reconstruction in Mississippi. You know, there had been a black sheriff. And 
he just didn't know it. But getting out and talking to other people kind of educated him on that. Another one of my favorite stories is we were able to, um, uh, uh, there was a workshop that was organized uh, just for University of Florida students uh, in, in the fall of 2011 in Woodrow, Mississippi. We were able to spend a whole day with Lawrence Guion. He was the founding chair of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. He worked closely with Fannie Hamer, and he just spent hours with our University of Florida students teaching us the rudiments of community organizing, of going door to door, uh, and, and, and getting people to, to sign up and, and to, to do things, right? And he, what I loved about it was he said, to be a good organizer, what I want you to do is I want you to put away your cell phones for a week. Uh, don't do any text messaging. Uh, don't, don't use any social media. I just want you to go out and practice talking to people one-on-one -on -one again. He said, this is how we built the civil rights movement. It was one person at a time. He said, in many occasions, we didn't even have phones. Uh, many of the people that we were trying to organize with didn't have you know, phone service, didn't have electricity, didn't have running water. And yet we build a movement that changed the nation. And so I guess that, that was one of my all-time favorite uh, moments. Mr. Ortiz, on behalf of WUFT and myself, I hope you have a great day. Enjoy the day. All right, you too. Thanks so much for calling. Students are usually warned about the negative effects their social media presence could have on their potential job searches. However, as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Brittany Bassler reports, a carefully monitored social media presence could actually help students get a job. Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. All these social media sites could help graduating college students land their next job. Although students have been warned to keep their pages private, now the National Association of Colleges and Employers is saying these sites can be used in favor of many job seekers. More hits on Facebook when it was like connected than it did just on my Instagram. Steve Johnson encourages his students to have an online presence. If you can monitor it, social media can be the, the catalyst that gets you that job that makes you stand out over the dozens of other candidates. Um, that might be applying uh, for that same position as you. Now just last year, 56% of businesses surveyed by the Society for Human Resource Management reported using social media sites to recruit potential candidates. Kimberly Percoco is a graduating senior and uses four different types of social media to promote herself to potential employers. I use obviously Facebook, I use YouTube, um, just to post the videos. I don't like to post them on Facebook. I'd rather have YouTube as the extra outlet, which is then connected to my Twitter and connects to my Facebook. Graduating college students can start their social networking just about anywhere by creating a web presence to have an edge in the job search process. Brittany Bassler, WUFT News. The Gainesville Regional Transit Service is looking to develop alternatives and ideas for the 16.6 miles between Santa Fe College and Gainesville Regional Airport. Enhance RTS Study Outreach Coordinator Ginger Corliss says right now it is possible to get from Santa Fe to the airport. However, multiple routes must be taken. RTS has a variety of different services, and so you, would, you could eventually get there, but it would take a while, so there's nothing a direct type of, of service. There's different routes that you can actually get on. A premium service is actually so you can move people very quickly. For example, during your peak travel times on a premium service, your travel headway 
uh, is basically you'd have a, a bus being able to pick you up every 10 minutes during peak and 15 off off peak, and it gives you examples of that. It's very accessible to new people quickly. But you go from destinations instead of having uh, a number of stops over a corridor, you have a specific stops at corridor destinations. An open house will be held at Gainesville Regional Utilities Administration Building tomorrow in order to gather and share insight into the project. Corliss says the opinion of the community is going to be important at this meeting. We have a couple of things to get reactions to as it relates to potential routes or alternative or options based on what we've kind of taken the the area and broken up into kind of six different sub-areas for us to take a closer look at. So we are going to ask the community, based on some initial findings, uh, how they feel about the routes that we're presenting, uh, To are there additional routes that we need to look at so that we're getting an idea of what eventually will be refined alternatives that will come back to the community later this uh, late spring, early summer, to have really kind of a refined alternative for them again to, to pick their preferred from. Corliss adds that as of now, there have been no objections to improving the system and says that the only goal of the RTS project is to better Gainesville's public transportation. The first workshop of many will be held on Tuesday at the GRU Administration Building from 6 to 8 p.m. Corliss encourages the community to stop by at any time. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Kaylee Chambers. And I'm Shane Chernoff.